0: so nature doesn't use platinum or gold to do reactions nature uses very abundant elements you don't want to rely on very precious and rare metals to run a process like that that needs to be scaled
1: greetings earthlings and welcome back to your podcast the show where the ideas around cutting carbon emissions are captivating to us. I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I'm the founder and CEO of Technica Communications and the founder of Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability. In today's episode, we are positively excited about the idea of carbon negative plastics. And embracing this positive perspective is key to tackling the tsunami that is climate change. I mean, it might look like a small wave out there on the horizon, but it's coming in fast. And the closer it gets to us, the bigger its impacts could be, especially if we don't do something about it today. That's why we started Earthlings 2.0 in the first place. A show where we can explore how we can be better versions of ourselves and be your compass to navigate all these opportunities and challenges we're facing in the 21st century. The Earthlings team is dedicated to ensuring that all of you Earthlings out there stay well informed and have the lowest anxiety possible when it comes to some of these existential challenges. So if you would like to return the favor, we ask you to become a member of our Patreon page, or if that's not financially feasible for you, please leave a review for us on our podcast apps. We want to hear your feedback, and I mean, obviously, we would love your financial support. It's only $5 a month, and just all of that from the collective Earthlings community will help support the production costs of this show also thank you to resource labs for having us on the network now when most of us think of plastic we think of the irony that many of these products have disposable uses but are made for materials that last forever in the environment and if you listen to episode two of season two you know we're all basically on a plastics diet with these microplastics showing up all over the world and making their way into our air and food and eventually our bodies But often, what we don't think about is how plastics contribute to the carbon emissions that are causing the climate crisis. According to the US EPA, the production ratio of carbon emissions to plastic production is about five to one. So that means five tons of carbon emissions for every one ton of plastic. It's a lot. Put another way, the annual emissions of plastic production equals the total emissions of about 19 million ice vehicles, or roughly the number of people living in the state of New York. A lot. So we know that 99% of plastics are made from fossil fuel feedstocks, and that there are carbon emissions throughout the entire production of plastics from extracting that fuel to refining it and to eventually making the plastics so i bet you're thinking what i'm thinking there has to be a better way our guest today is a scientist and co-founder who helped discover a better way a process to create plastic using captured co2 especially at industrial sources like chemical plants Instead of releasing those carbon emissions into the atmosphere, Renew CO2 captures them and basically sequesters those emissions in the form of sustainable polymers. Polymers are basically a building block for many types of plastics. So, with that, today's steward of sustainability is Karen Calvinhoe. She's the CTO and co-founder of Renew CO2. And she's a Breakthrough Energy Fellow who is at the forefront of this revolution in plastics production. She holds a PhD in chemistry from Rutgers University and has published numerous papers that demonstrate her deep expertise in electrochemistry, analytical and inorganic chemistry. Her desire to discover how to convert CO2 emissions into plastic originates from her life growing up in Brazil.
0: I did my undergraduate degree in Brazil um, studying chemistry. And one of the things that was very apparent to me uh, was the impact of the petrochemical industry. And that was true because my uh, my dad worked at a chemical company. So we lived in the neighborhood and I could smell the smells. I could, uh, I could see the impact of uh, oil spills when they happened. Uh, there was one, in the river, very, uh, very close to my home. Uh, and I could see how long it took to recover from that. Um, and I also understood the importance of that industry and why it wasn't cleaner, that there are just not enough high yield, cheap green processes to replace those petrochemical processes. So I wanted to direct my curiosity and my uh, nerdy interest in chemistry. Uh, To something that could help change that reality that could help build a greener chemistry and greener uh, and greener environments and greener neighborhoods to to live in.
1: Wow, that's an incredible uh, firsthand account of how devastating the oil industry can be to the people living around it. What was that like growing up around those facilities in that oil spill?
0: So one of one of the things that was very remarkable to me is I can always listen to my mom coughing when I think of her because of the chemicals that are in the air. The area where I lived at had a big soybean oil extraction plant, and it really smells like, very strongly like cooked grains and some solvents in the air as well. Um And... The oil spill was reflected in really having a lot of degradation of the soil and a very long time for recovery of that soil as well uh, as the rivers. So um, those rivers that were affected could not be used for drinking water for a very long time. At the same time, see the demand and impact uh, of the products that these companies were making. They never stopped because we needed those products Uh, they're a big part of how we live our material lives like uh, the the energy that brings us from one place to another the materials that we use to clean the house is that balance right it's both things at the same time
1: we enjoy the benefit that a lot of these uh new types of plastics have brought to our world right especially in when you think about medicine and the medical community and the pharmaceutical community, um, huge advances have been made in terms of, of plastics. I only know this because my dad's a chemist and a local chemist, so kind of grew up with some of that and um, better living through chemistry, right? And there has been a lot of tremendous advances in in various industries that have come about because of these various types of plastics that we've invented over the years uh but we also know that industry alone is is what is it 232 metric tons of greenhouse gases emitted annually just in the United States it's that's almost so big it's hard to fathom how large that is so how is renew co2's technology addressing um this challenge of these emissions so
0: normally when we make plastics from petroleum you're uh, cracking oil, and then uh, that cracking process already releases a lot of CO2. And then we react that cracked uh, hydrocarbon with more oxygen and release more CO2 as a byproduct of the process, and then go on to, uh, to make the monomers and then the polymers. And in each part of the process, there is more and more CO2 generated. So the CO2 is an invisible, a byproduct of, of this uh, of this process that that right now is a problem because of climate change. What we do is flip that process around. We start with CO two and end up with the plastic precursor. So the way we do that is using CO two and water, taking the the hydrogens out of water, and reacting that with the CO two inside of an electrolyzer. So, uh, to generate those uh, raw materials for plastics. And what is more important is that this process is powered by electricity. So uh, we're able to do that leveraging renewable energy instead of uh, natural gas, which is what the chemical companies will normally use to run their processes. And we can do that very selectively. So we spend less energy in the purification as well.
1: That's really cool, so you're taking um c o two at the beginning and you're using that as your input to then create the plastic polymers essentially exactly it doesn't it matter where you get that c o two from
0: so it does matter uh, we want to use c o two that uh it comes in large quantities in in concentrated sources so because that is more economical. So to get a product at the end that is um, that would be competitive with a petrochemical process, we need to start with a source like industrial CO2 emissions, because those come with a predictable concentration, um, and they can be easily captured and processed to uh, into an electrolyzer. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily have to be pure to start with, but the the fact that it comes in a predictable concentration is really important. So we can clean it up and uh, we, can, we can use it. Uh, we don't develop the capture process ourselves. Most uh, chemical companies have a CO2 capture process, or uh, there are several startups working on that process itself. What we really focus on is on the conversion of that carbon that was captured into something that may, uh, will be useful, pro- profitable, and also carbon negative.
1: Carbon negative plastic. I mean, who would have thunk it?
0: <laughs> yes. the The goal is to really change how the the impact of that those plastics have on the environment.
1: Hundred percent. So uh, I understand that you're able to do this through a catalyst, and and that's sort of the somewhat of sort of the secret sauce that that you have developed when i think of an enzyme i think of it as something that is somewhat living right and you use the word catalyst so is that a a man-made type of element that is having a reaction with the co2 what is it exactly
0: yeah, so um, the catalyst that we use is, is something that I developed during my PhD together with my co-founder, Anders Lorsen, uh, and also uh, our professor, which was uh, Professor Chuck Mukes at Rutgers University. So what is interesting about the way nature does this is that most enzymes that do it require some energy and are pretty slow at, at doing that. But there are a few that are very interesting because at the same time, ta- at the same time that they convert CO2 into, let's say, acetate, um, they release energy while doing it. And we looked at the blueprint of those enzymes and got the important features of, of those, uh, in a heterogeneous catalyst. Uh, heterogeneous catalysts have some advantages over, uh, over enzymes, which, um, the robustness in industrial processes that are very harsh in terms of pH and also temperatures and so on. Um, The materials that we use are conductive, so uh, they can be mounted into electrodes and do this conversion with the the electricity power. Um, And these are very cheap materials as well. So uh, nature doesn't use platinum or gold to do reactions, uh, nature uses very abundant elements. Um, so all of our catalysts are also based on uh, cheap, abundant metals, uh, which uh, makes the the solution scalable. Because you don't want to rely on very precious and rare metals to uh, to run a process like that that needs to needs to be scaled. So it's man-made, it's based on nickel and phosphorus, um, and we uh, mix those, those elements together in furnaces at high, uh, higher temperatures uh, using hydrothermal reactors to really generate a solid. So in our case, the CO2 um, binds to the surface, as well as um, hydrogen in the form of hydrides. So uh, when we feed water to the electrolyzer, uh, that water gets the oxygens stripped away in the anode. And on the cathode, the, the hydrogens receive electrons, and that hydrogen pr- plus electrons are, get attached to the carbon. So that's how we, we get um, molecules that are more reduced than CO2 and um, that are longer. Than, than CO2. So we make molecules with two, three, three, four carbons inside of the electrolyzer. So this powder does all of the magic and it makes the importance of it is really to activate that CO2, which is very inert otherwise, uh, to react. And the this is one of the biggest challenges is to activate something that is very happy being just just CO2 and being in the atmosphere, being in art uh, and into reacting into a product that that is more useful.
1: That's fascinating. Thank you so much for explaining all of that to us, because I know it's and I know what you explained is is just the simple terms of all the chemistry that that you all are doing over there at Renew CO2. So I appreciate you uh, framing it for us. I understand that uh, you've been building a demonstration project to prove out this solution, you know, get it from the lab, you know, into real world uh, experience. What's that going to look like? And and what's your timeline?
0: Yeah, so we started um, building a large demonstration that produces a ton of product per year. And uh, the first piece of that was the uh, electrolyzer itself. So we scaled that from uh, the size of about a, a stamp to the, the size of a laptop. And that's where the core of the reaction happens. Um, after that, we have a purification process, which we are demonstrating right now, um, that starts with uh, removing any of the ionic species that are there, and then uh, continues with evaporation and distillation. So that brings us to the polymer grade that is required uh, for for really using this to make plastics, um, and the final demonstration will include both of these parts connected into an integrated process, and we expect to have that done by, by
1: next year. And so, based on um, the the work that you're doing with your catalyst to create these plastics, are there any types of plastics that are going to be uh, a better fit? for the polymers that you're making than others?
0: So uh, we are making um, polyester-based materials as well as uh, PET. So uh, the first molecule we're making is ethylene glycol. And one of the next ones in the pipeline is propylene glycol, which are really good precursors for making the polyesters. And polyesters are, as you know, a part of, uh, a lot of clothing that we see out there. And PET is used as, uh, as packaging for food. So um, it helps us preserve food for longer. It has really excellent oxygen barrier properties, which allows us in, in liquid barrier properties.
1: And if you were to look at the product that you create uh, from your system, and uh, the same molecules from uh, the more traditional process, can you tell them apart?
0: You cannot tell them apart. Um, they are chemically exactly the same. Um, so this is why we are demonstrating the purification process, because we want to show that uh, what you can buy nowadays in the market is the, exactly the same what we, and that we can make from CO2, which really opens up the possibility of uh, of using this at scale.
1: It's fascinating. So how do you see uh, your conversion process um, from taking CO2 and, and turning it into plastics, how do you see that playing into the broader landscape of decarbonization?
0: Yeah, so there are so many things that we need to decarbonize, and there are many solutions out there that we will have to use. Um, so uh, we see this process being very important for decarbonizing industrial emissions really working on those large concentrated sources of CO2, um, like in the chemical industry, like in steel manufacturing and so on, and having a role especially in allowing the customer to convert those emissions into something that has value instead of burying it underground. So the alternative right now is um, just to sequester CO2 which has geographic limitations because of the geological formations where you can do that at. And it also has a cost associated with it without any real um, revenue that is generated when you, when you have that CO2 sequestered. While that is an important uh, solution, what we do is uh, enable the, the chemical companies to generate some profit out of that CO2 that they're saving instead of having it as a cost line.
1: So do you think the plastics industry uh, themselves are going to be sort of the first, your first customers since they kind of get what you're doing here and they'll have CO2 emissions that they'll want to capture?
0: Yes, uh, they are uh, great first customers because of that. Uh, They already have the demand uh, for, uh, for these raw materials and they already have the CO2 emissions they have commitments to being net zero by 2050, and they are already installing uh, carbon capture. Many of those companies, so uh, we really offer them a, a solution to deal with the, that CO2 after it's captured. At the same time as they are uh, u- producing their own uh, their own input, so uh, it really offers a, a double benefit that, that will ultimately be a really, really great fit.
1: And it sounds like because your your process uses electricity, that eventually you might be able to establish a, a renewable uh, energy situation there for yourself as well to reduce the carbon footprint further. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Uh, and we, that is the absolutely ideal scenario where we run this with uh, just renewable electricity. And when we do that, our uh, footprint is minus 1.2 tons of CO2 per ton of product, which is excellent. Um, and we can be carbon negative. But um, if we have to have a little bit of uh, of natural gas in the grid just to balance it out, um, that's okay. We can tolerate some of it and we can tolerate up to 140 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. Um, that would and bring us to to being net zero. And that's still a lot better than the the petrochemical derived product, which is uh, emits 1.6 tons of CO2 per ton of product.
1: You know, given all this innovation, I'm curious to know, uh, what's your what's your vision for the plastics industry? Do you think we'll get to a carbon neutral or carbon even negative plastic in the future?
0: Absolutely. I think this is this is feasible and possible and there is enough w- uh, willingness to do it right now with the carbon incentives and with the technological developments, we can do this in a, form, in a way that's economical, that is sustainable um, and that is scalable. Um, and I think the confluence of those three really makes for, for a future in which we, we can buy products, that are, that are not doing immense harm to climate change uh, every time that we go to the supermarket or make a purchase online.
1: It strikes me that it's... Because um, like we said at the beginning of the show, plastics have brought a lot of good to the world. There's a lot that we can do today because of the plastics that we've invented. Uh, so we don't want to, you know, get rid of them But at the same time, we need to make make them in a more responsible way and one that is significantly reduces, uh, the carbon intensity. And that, you know, really comes with the capturing of the carbon as well. And I'm curious, what's the landscape that you're seeing out there from your perspective around, um, industrial players being willing to capture their carbon? Are we still in the very early stages of this concept or? Are you seeing more of a pickup of interest in capturing carbon? What do you see when you go out into the world to talk about your solution? Uh,
0: When we talk to chemical companies, almost all of them are looking into carbon capture. They're trying to find the most economical solution to do it. They're looking into what can be implemented fast enough at a scale because they have corporate goals and a budget to do it right now. So a few years ago, when we started this, it was um, a little, a little in the ether. It was interesting, but uh, there was no urgency uh, to it. And now there is an urgency, and we can feel that uh, in our customers. Uh, the projects are getting started, and uh, they're just looking for the technologies that can accomplish that.
1: I appreciate that you're you're seeing that because um, I've. I've had some conversations with uh, folks over the years in different industries, not plastics, but others where basically the consensus was, yeah, we'll, we'll put in carbon capture as soon as everybody else is required to do it too. Like, they weren't going to go it alone. Uh, do you see, do you see that um, sort of also happening in, in the plastic space or do you think that people are approaching it differently? So
0: uh, it, really changes by company. Some companies are ahead um and really want to do the right thing, regardless of what their comp of what the competition is doing. Um, and some companies are a little a little bit behind and no one wants to be the first. They want to be the second one to do it after the first one has shown that that uh they they can do it they can do it well. Um but there are a lot of companies that are racing to achieve those goals. And there has been a serious change. The race to be sustainable is happening because a lot of it, in part due to the Gen Z consume, consumer habits. Uh, Gen Zers are awesome. They're like not buying things that are not sustainable. And that is pushing the companies that produce those products to push the chemical industry to deliver something that's more sustainable. Um, so Gen Zers are changing the world with their consumer habits.
1: I also know that uh, you were a part of the DOE's Chain Reaction Innovations. You were a fellow of the DOE Chain Reactions Innovations at the Argonne National Lab. So I wanted to ask you, like, what advice might you have for uh, aspiring scientists and, and engineers looking to have a positive impact in this field? Yeah,
0: uh, so the Chain Reaction Innovations Program uh, and, uh, and also the Breakthrough Energy Program are two programs that I had the uh, the pleasure of being a part of are great programs for helping scientists to become entrepreneurs. Funded by DOE allow entrepreneurs to use lab resources uh, to test products. And instead of building a lab from scratch, in um, get the proof of concept that is required for fundraising, and with breakthrough energy, it is very similar as well. they're uh, they are able to provide resources to help uh, coach uh, the entrepreneurs and uh, and scientists into becoming the leaders of the energy transition as well as uh, fund that development because uh, it does take a lot of physical resources to get. Uh, scientists, engineers, uh, and everyone that needs to be involved in that scale-up process. So uh, it's been incredible to be part of those groups and see uh, so much willingness to uh, change the world and the support to really get that done. It's really support to get it done fast and grow and, and scale.
1: Thank you, and and what advice might you have for uh, other women that are in this industry, especially on the technical side of things, um, who have an idea and and want to scale it into a business? Like, what advice would you have given yourself when you started out?
0: Yeah, I think one of the most important things is that uh, to not not sit back and uh, really take leadership on it. Um, there is a lot of power in growing as a woman in uh, in uh, environments that are mostly male dominated, like engineering is and and chemistry is to a certain extent. Um, and uh, that power is in how we learn to relate to everyone, uh, despite being in the minority and despite doing things that are that are not necessarily conventional. So uh, it is. Uh, an incredible skill that we develop and we shouldn't be shy to use it. So uh, relating to customers, relating to funders, relating uh, to investors uh, and to the public uh, is such an important skill and bringing everyone along in that journey of building a new product and uh, changing an industry.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, it's, you know, sometimes I feel like maybe as women, we put too much emphasis on how we're showing up and how we might sort of be judged by that rather than just like going out there and just being ourselves and using the skills and the, the pers- different perspectives that we have, you know, to our ven- benefit and not, not worrying so much about what other people are going to think of us. Because sort of when you put your focus there, it kind of tends to, you tend to pull back, right? You don't let your your full self come out sometimes. And our
0: full self is required to make the impact.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, what's your timeline? When might we see some of the polymers made from your uh, catalyst out there in the world?
0: So, uh, with the pilot demonstration next year, we hope to uh, to produce enough to generate our first batch, uh, and uh, in twenty twenty five, hopefully even more of that than of those experimental batches. So. Um, maybe in 2026 we'll uh, start actually having enough to to have, let's say, a run of clothing, uh, a special run of clothing. So keep your eyes out. We may be in the market soon.
1: Earthlings, are you excited as I am that within two years, give or take, we could be watching this groundbreaking technology from renew CO2 unfold before our very eyes. Thank you to Karen for simplifying the details of this complex chemistry because I know for a lot of us, like Chemistry 101 was a long time ago. Um, and, you know, thank you, Karen, for opening up this new concept to us carbon negative plastics. But most importantly, what I think is most interesting about what Renew CO 2 is doing is that they have created a carbon capture solution for heavy industry that generates revenue for them. And, you know, if any of you have been following the circular economy very closely, um, it can cost a lot of extra money to be a part of the circular economy. And anytime you can show industry that you can generate additional revenue for them, wow, it's easy for them to say yes to that. Our faith in humanity is restored this week by Hannah Testa. She's a 21-year-old plastics pollution advocate that got her start in kindergarten. Now, you may have witnessed Hannah's advocacy firsthand if you shop at Starbucks. She was a part of the global coalition of NGOs, that advocated for the removal of plastic straws and a more sustainable coffee cup, along with non-GMO organic snacks for children. She also helped organize the first two Plastic Pollution Awareness Days in 2017 and 2018. And in 2020, Hannah was a part of a small handful of advocates that introduced the federal bill, the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act, It is considered the most comprehensive approach to plastics and packaging ever introduced into the U S Congress. And despite Hannah getting her start in this advocacy before hitting her double digits, her philanthropy and unwavering passion continues to evolve. And she's inspiring to us because uh, it's quite easy to feel discouraged about this uphill battle of fighting climate change and being more sustainable. And um, Hannah reminds us that the most impactful transformations often begin with the smallest steps and that you're never too young to get started on this beautiful blue-green space flower that we call home. Hey listeners, this show is a part of the Resource Labs Network. It's a curated collective of industry leaders who are accelerating the clean energy transition. If you want to find out more, visit us at resourcelabs.co.